My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. How are you? I'm good. How are you on this? It's actually a beautiful day here. I know, it's gorgeous. Might not not be a beautiful day when this podcast actually airs, but uh, just so everyone knows, there's sunshine (laughs) outside, feels like spring. Past Linnea and past Grace are getting all the vitamin D. It's a beautiful day. It's good times. Yeah. My mom made waffles this morning. Oh, that's so lovely. Wonderful. Yeah, made some like nice fruit salad, just to Ooh. just to get the audience hungry, uh, mm. hungry for waffles and hungry for knowledge. Hungry for knowledge. <laughs> so, Grace, what will I be, what will I be biting into today? <laughs> so this week is the seventy fifth anniversary of the liberation of Holland, which is a big yeah. event in Canadian military history. And so, Historic yes. Canada is releasing a new Heritage Minute to commemorate that, which is super cool. It is super cool. Our catalog of episodes is increasing. I know. We're definitely eating through the catalog faster than it's being replenished. However, <laughs> this new one, I think, is the new, like, first new one of the decade. It is, yeah. It's the first one of the, the 20s, which is super cool. But unfortunately, we pre-record these, of course, so we can't yes. do that one for the liberation of Holland anniversary. Yes. But there is another Heritage Minute that is related to that. Ooh. And so we are going to do the Mona Parsons Heritage oh, Minute. Oh, very cool. I know. It's close to our hearts. It's close. It's a Nova Scotia yeah. uh, born one. Actually, she yeah. lived in Wolfville, which is where you went to university. Yeah. It is. She did. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Mona Parsons, who is like an all around badass. Just yeah. spoiler alert. This is the first one I cried while I was researching. <laughs> All right. So we're going to get into the life and times of Mona Parsons. So Mona Louise Parsons was born in Middleton in 1901. Mm -hmm. Her father, Norval, owned and operated the Parsons and Elliott home furnishing business around the corner from the family home on Commercial Street. And the business was very successful and offered a privileged and comfortable life for Mona and her older brothers, Ross and Gwyn, as well as their mother, Mary. So it's a nice childhood growing up in Middleton, Nova Scotia, but Norval was also a lieutenant colonel in the local militia and instilled in his children a strong sense of loyalty and patriotism and a positive attitude, which is going to be necessary because in 1911, the whole town of Middleton burned to the ground, which I did not know. (laughs) It did, yeah. (laughs) So when the whole town burns to the ground, the Parsons family store is destroyed, but They are thankfully saved by insurance, and they manage to move the whole family to Wolfville. Yeah. So that's about 60 kilometers away from Middleton. Yeah. Yeah. It's one small Nova Scotia town moving to another small Nova Scotia town. Yeah. Honestly, there's still not much going on in Middleton. (laughs) I can't imagine what little was going on in Middleton. In like 1900-something. Apparently mass arson. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Was it arson? No, I don't think so. It could have been, though. Could have been. Let's start a conspiracy. Yeah. (laughs) So Norval began participating in the stock market 
And okay. in Wolfville, he made that his business and the family flourished because of it. So he's really good at playing the stocks. And he's a good dad. He's a successful dad. He's not like John A. McDonald's dad. <laughs> he's very present and he's successful at business. <laughs> wow. Not Crazy. tripping and fumbling. <laughs> and Mona was always okay so the source that i was using it essentially said mona was always indulged by her father in the sense that she was basically allowed to do and say whatever she wanted which like what a crazy indulgence she got to be a person (laughs) and have opinions you know (laughs) what a daddy's girl (laughs) it was good times back then (laughs) mona you are allowed to have an opinion I might disagree, but you're allowed to have it all the same. Wow, Daddy, thank you. It's like, Mona, what do you want for your birthday this year? Uh, I'd like to have my own thoughts and feelings. (laughs) I spoil you rotten. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So the First World War broke out in 1914. And And many men from Wolfville left to fight in Europe, including all of the Parsons men. So her two brothers and her her dad. dad. Yeah, they're all Shoot. fighting. And so it's just Mona and her mother left behind in Wolfville. Yeah, because it's World War One, and they all thought that, like, war was super fun times. Yeah, it's definitely before the romanticism of war is really shattered. And yeah. so they're real gung-ho. They're super excited. Yeah. So Mona contributes to the war effort. Uh, her contribution is she knits socks for boys overseas. So I'm not sure if it gal. was through the Red Cross or if it was through some kind of organization. But yeah, mm-hmm. lots of sock knitting. But in general, she kind of rejected the notions of Victorian womanhood. So the th- Oh my God, did she wear pants? There's she, definitely pictures of her in pants. Was she one of those pant-wearing <laughs> hussies? Just let me wear <laughs> pants. <laughs> I bet she wore collared shirts too. Oh the my nerve. God. So the general, like, interest of becoming a homemaker and, like, becoming a stay-at-home wife never really was Mona's driving motivator. Like, it doesn't seem like she was ever interested in becoming a homemaker. So when the war ended, her brothers and her father returned. Mona was 18 at this point. Oh, God, they all made it home. They all survived. They all come home. And Mona was described as now being tall, graceful, and she had a wonderful singing voice, and she'd really fallen in love with acting. Okay. So over the next 10 years, she studied acting at the Curry School of Expression in Boston, as well as at the Acadia University Ladies Seminary. So there's like the girls portion. So you guys are alumni to buddies. So by 1929, Mona had taken numerous courses at Acadia. She had starred in several plays, and she's ready for a bigger stage. And with her father's quiet encouragement, she defies the wishes of her mother, and she leaves Wolfville (sighs) to pursue acting in New York City. Badass. Go, girl, get it. Glitz, glamour. But Mona does not find the dignified career in theater that she had hoped to find in New York. Um, Mm. the Great Depression hits the year that she moves, so I can't imagine that helps finding work. 1929, stock market crash. Yeah. New York's in a tizzy. And so the only work that she can find is as a chorus girl in the Zigfield Follies. So she doesn't wind up lay herself, but she does wind up 
as a chorus girl and she doesn't think that's like it's not the career that she had hoped for she's also kind of like older like I don't know it just seems like at this time by the she's like 28 or 29 at this point so okay by that point I feel like most people expect you to be like married and settled down with kids but she's just like nope f you don't care (laughs) I love Um, that she doesn't stay in New York long, though, because she was summoned home in 1930, shortly before her 29th birthday, because her mother back in Wolfville had suffered from a stroke. Oh, no. So Mary has a stroke, and Mona has to immediately go home. Her father hired a local woman named Alma to nurse Mona's mother, but it didn't do much good because one day before Mona's birthday, on February 18th, her mother suffered from another fatal stroke. So her oh. mother passes away. The death of her mother made Mona reflect, and she realized that if independence was what she desired, then she would need to find a practical mean of achieving it. So she's weighing her options and sees that if what she truly wants is independence, acting probably isn't going to be the path that she finds it. So she decides that she's going to uh, enroll in nursing school. Okay. So nursing is like one of the few occupations during the Great Depression that women could find work in. Right. So Mona returns to the United States. Uh, She attended the Jersey School of Medicine, and Mm -hmm. she graduated in 1935. Okay. After training at the Jersey City Medical Center, uh, she met an expatriate Nova Scotian named Dr. Ross Faulkner, who hired her to work in his Park Avenue office. Ooh, bougie. Glitzy. Also, every time I saw Jersey City Medical Center or like the Jersey School of Medicine, I just think Jersey Shore. <laughs> it's just like... It is, um, though. It's th- she probably walked along the Jersey Shore. She was GTLing before it was a thing. Yeah. She's just walking down the like beach and stuff and just, just fights happening and just like partying all for like five years in nursing school. Um mm. But so over the course of five years, she had managed to achieve the independence that she so desired in one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world. So that's like pretty good. Like over the course of five years, you're like, all right, I got a job in Park Avenue. That's on the Monopoly board. So it's got to be good. That sure is. (laughs) But her whole life gets flipped upside down in 1937. So Mona's brother, Ross, wrote asking her for a favor Ross had a mm-hmm. business associate named Wilhelm Leinhardt who needed to be shown around New York City. Wilhelm was Dutch, he was wealthy, and he was representing his family's plumbing fixture business on a tour through America. And Wilhelm was instantly captivated by Mona. Um, his plumbing fixture business? <laughs> yeah, very romantic, very glamorous. Okay. So, like, so I imagine it's like taps faucets. and yeah. stuff? <laughs> I imagine it's like a big briefcase with a bunch of faucets. <laughs> You should go door to door. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Wilhelm. So he decided to extend his visit in New York, and he eventually proposed to Mona that year, who accepted. Um, Wilhelm had a few red flags. He, they're not like, they're things today that you probably wouldn't be concerned about, but at the time they were considered socially unacceptable. So he had a, he was divorced. So he had a previous marriage and he divorced his first wife because she gave birth to a son that he had not fathered, but he didn't expect the boy or his, yeah, it's like, it seems like he's the victim in that situation. Yeah. Not like that he's a bad person to marry. 
but he didn't think that they would be a problem given that uh, he had offered them a very generous settlement upon the divorce, and he had allowed okay. the child to keep his last name. So, so this sounds good. Yeah, so the little boy can keep his Dutch name. So as fiancés, Wilhelm and Mona visit Norval back in Wolfville. Norval also had remarried, so he had remarried to the woman who was nursing Mona's mother. So he's okay. married to Alma now. Okay. So small town. This is so small town, Nova Scotia. That still happens in Wolfville today. <laughs> you were the last woman to see my wife before she died. Will you marry me? Oh, yes. The ghost of my former wife has entered your body. Will you please marry me? <laughs> so after they visit Norval, the couple sails for Holland in August of 1937. So they've only known each other, like, they met in February. So right. February, March, April, May, June, July, August. And now seven she's months. Just gonna, now she's just going to go to Holland with him. Okay. Yeah, and now she's off to Europe. She's never been to Europe before. Live um, your life, Mona. Yeah. So she enters this new world where she's greeted by endless rounds of introductions, parties, and receptions. Mona began to learn Dutch, which helped her win favor with Wilhelm's parents and close friends. Uh, including friends like Dr. Pete Houtapel and his wife, Pam. Am I Mona, supposed to care about him? Is he important? They'll come up later. Uh, okay. <laughs> don't, I'll remember that name. Is that super significant right now? Okay. Mona and Wilhelm were married in the Netherlands, surrounded by a small group of friends and family, including Mona's brother, uh, Ross, and his wife. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so they, they made the trip. Their honeymoon was spent touring through Europe's hottest destinations for six months. Oh, Which I bet they biked with little baskets <laughs> and had like loaves of bread and cheese. Oh, so precious. Did you bike? Did you bread? Did you cheese? Yes. I love that their honeymoon oui. is almost as long as how long they've known each other. Yeah, it's like basically just an introduction. That's great. That's great. Um. When they returned, the couple bought a small piece of land outside Amsterdam in a community called Laren. They built a beautiful home called Ingleside, and Wilhelm assured that uh, Mona had all the comforts of home and more. Her love of music inspired him to buy Mona a custom-made Oak August Forester piano. By 1940, Wilhelm's status... I know. It's just like, darling, I've bought you a custom piano. That's all you'd need to win my heart. Right. A custom piano? Six Dang. months, six months honeymooning and a custom piano. I'm sold. <laughs> to win my heart, you just need to have money, six months <laughs> of free time, and a custom piano. <laughs> so by 1940, Wilhelm's status and Mona's charm had made the couple the talk of the town. But what else happens in, in 1940, Linnea? Dun, dun, dun. Nazis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the invasion of Holland by Nazi forces began in the early hours of the 10th of May, 1940. After five days, Holland was occupied. Change in Dutch society did not happen overnight. It depended on where you lived and who you were. So from my understanding, the closer you were to urban centers, you probably felt the impacts of the invasion faster. And the higher up you were in society, the longer you were kind of shielded from change. But... 
freedoms did gradually begin to disappear. And by September 1941, life had really started to change. So shopping became entirely limited to rations. Citizens Mm -hmm. had to abide by a curfew. And because of Mona's upbringing with her father, she has this really strong sense of patriotism. And she was really offended by the occupation. Wilhelm, working out of his Amsterdam offices, helped with the logistics and financial support needed to protect Jews and others from Nazi persecution. But Mm -hmm. Mona wants to be personally involved. So she wants to help in a more hands-on way. Of course she does. Such a go-getter, that one. (laughs) So Mona joins a network of resistance composed of people from diverse walks of life. So farmers, teachers, business people. Feeling protected by their station, Mona and Wilhelm started taking in downed Allied pilots. So from my understanding, pilots that would go down near or in and around Holland would need somewhere to stay as they were like slowly transported to safe houses or British stations. So... The, they take Ingleside, their house, they take the second floor, and they secretly construct a compartment where they could keep or lodge airmen until they received a signal that told them it was safe to send the airmen to the next safe house. So they would take them into their home, and then they would arrange for transportation to send them to uh, a town called Leiden. So from Leiden, they would move the airmen by canal boats to waiting British Mm -hmm. submarines. So they're like part of a chain. But unknown to Mona and Wilhelm, the Leiden cell had been infiltrated by Nazi informants. Mm. So in September, the Lionhearts sent two airmen to Leiden, which triggered the Nazi trap. And the Gestapo swept swept in and started picking off people all along the network. So essentially this one... This one safe house has Nazis in it. It's not a safe house anymore. Oh, that's And so, yeah. So they started watching their friends get arrested and some were executed. And Mona and Wilhelm knew that they were going to come for them next and they couldn't just sit idly by. So at the time, it was believed that only males were being targeted. So as a woman, Mona believes that she's safe from being arrested or executed. And so what they decide is that Wilhelm is going to flee and go into hiding. And Mona is going to stay behind and offer an alibi for him and say that he had gone on one of his frequent fishing trips. The Gestapo came visiting as expected and Mona played the role of gracious hostess feigning ignorance to why they were calling. She offered them drinks. She apologized for the absence of her husband and gave them all cigars But the Gestapo was not fooled, and they escorted Mona to a waiting staff car, and Mona was sent to Bertingskans prison in Amsterdam. So Mona remained in prison for three months, and she doesn't know why she's there. Like, she's getting no information as to when she'll be sent to trial. She doesn't know where Wilhelm is. She doesn't know if they have him. Everything's a mystery. Sounds like something Hitler would do. Sounds like it's pretty pretty typical Nazi experience. Yeah. Uh, until the night of December 21st, 1941. So the Nazis had found Wilhelm, which made Mona and any information she had dispensable. And the next day at 8 a.m., Mona was told to get dressed and that she was going to stand trial. Her case okay. was taken very seriously by the Germans. Um, she was tried before a military court, which rarely happened to women. So usually women are tried before a civilian court. And it definitely would not have happened this early in the war. 
So the trial took place in the Carlton Hotel, which was a place she and Wilhelm had visited many times before the war. Mm-hmm. And the trial was conducted in German, which Mona did not speak very well, but she knew enough to know that she had been found guilty and condemned to death by firing squad. Okay. Mona's only response to this was to bow her head cordially to the judge and say, Guten Morgen, mein Herren, which translates to good morning, gentlemen. And she walked out of the courtroom. When she turned Boss to leave. Bitch. Oh, yeah. It's just like, all right. See ya. <laughs> when she turned to leave, she was stopped by the judge outside the courtroom who was struck by her courage, and he recommended she appeal the sentence to General General Der Flieger von Christensen. Don Flieger? I apologize to the nation of Germany. <laughs> <laughs> so Christensen was described as a very tough man, but Mona and he actually had some friends in common. So they they kind of ran in similar circles, mm-hmm. and she appealed to him, stating something along the lines of, if the world wasn't so crazy right now, we might have actually wound up becoming friends. Like, you and yeah. I might have actually met each other. And he ended up commuting her sentence to life in prison instead of death. So okay. that's that's what the Heritage Minute is about, basically. Right. Because the Heritage Minute is her kind of like escaping prison, but it kind of flashes back to her trial. And right. so she's before a judge says her famous line. And then she's stopped by a judge saying like, you're so brave. You should try and appeal this, appeal mm-hmm. this decision. So in early January, she was transported by train to Anrath Penitentiary in Krenfeld, which is along the German Rhineland. This would have been the first of many prisons Mona would stay in over the next three years. So she gets moved around a lot. Okay. In every prison, Mona tried to sabotage the work that she was tasked with in support of the German war effort. So okay. every job she's given, she's like, I'm going to fuck it up somehow. <laughs> Funnily enough, she was once tasked with knitting socks for German soldiers, ah. going back to her roots. But this time, she adds a neatly concealed knot in the sole of every sock that she made. Um, She was eventually found out, however, which led to her being placed in solitary confinement at Wettage Prison. Okay. So here she met a 22-year-old Dutch baroness named Wendeline van Holth in the winter of 1944. So she's been in prison for three years at this point. Mm -hmm. Wendeline had been arrested as a member of the student resistance movement, and ever since had been attempting repeated escapes. So that's why she's in solitary confinement as well. Uh... So in the crowded Veshta prison, Vendeline was kept in isolation. And so the reason that Mona met her is because Mona was on kitchen duty. And okay. she managed to smuggle away half a potato and she snuck it to Vendeline. And so that's Aww. how the two women met. And soon they were really close friends, and Mona was part of Vendeline's next escape plan. Cool. Little prison break. I love oh, it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. These two are like best pals, and they're like, we ain't going to stay here much longer. 
So the two exchanged recipes to pass the time, and Vendeline fondly remembered that Mona would entertain the two of them with songs that she knew. So she has this like huge array of songs, uh, and they <laughs> range from, as Vendeline said, they range from sweet to naughty. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know what a naughty song is. Well. <laughs> it's get low. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's, it's definitely get low. <laughs> get low. So... These were largely distractions from the harsh reality that Vendeline and Mona had to face every single day. For one, Mona still had no idea what had happened to Wilhelm. So she knew that he had been discovered, but she didn't know if he had been executed. Wilhelm had always suffered from poor health, having been diagnosed with polycystic kidneys in his 20s. So Mm -hmm. if he hadn't been executed, could he even survive harsh prison life? Furthermore, Mona was suffering, like many prisoners, from illness as well. She had always had uh, respiratory issues, and so... I feel you, Mona. Yeah. You two are two peas in a pod. Two peas in a pod. So Mona and Vendeline asked the prison directress for winter clothes, uh, because it's winter and they're both sick. Um, They were only granted sweaters and shoes, which provided little warmth. But more importantly to their plan, they were civilian clothes, so they could use those to disguise their prison guard if they managed to escape. Right. So the turning point happened in early 1945 when the Allies began bombing German-held establishments, like the small airfields near the prison. So Vendeline and Mona watched in horror as the men's prison was hit by a cluster of bombs, killing all the inmates. Suddenly, a large building on the women's prison complex was ablaze, and the directress opened the gate to the outside, fearing the inmates would be bombed if they remained in the prison. Mm -hmm. The location was surrounded by guards, so it was doubtful any of the women would escape. And so they essentially just opened the gates and let all the women go, believing that the guards are going to be able to watch all of them. And as Vendeline recalled, many of the women didn't even move. They just, like, sat on the ground in fear, And they were scared that if they left the prison, they were going to be killed by guards. If they stay in the prison, they're going to get bombed. But Mona and Vendeline had been discussing escaping for months, and so they just took each other's hands and they walked out of the prison. No one followed them. The bombings were drawing all the attention of the guards, and so the women just ran away from the prison all day, not stopping for food or rest. As the evening fell, the women began walking toward the dim lights that they could see, and they found that they were near a farm on the outskirts of Coplinburg. The two had run 18 kilometers that day. Oh, my God. So it's just like, it's so crazy. It's just like, we've been waiting months, and now the doors are just open, and no one's going to follow us. Yeah. So... Mona and Vendeline settled in at the barn of the farm that they had found, and they had to come up with some kind of plan to get back to Holland, or at least get back to unoccupied territory. So the two needed to pretend to be German, not a Canadian and a Dutch woman. Vendeline spoke German proficiently, but Mona was unable to mask her accent, and she, nor did she speak German perfectly anyways. So the plan was that Mona was going to pretend to have some kind of mental handicap that would prevent her mm-hmm. from speaking. And Mona, or Vendeline would pretend to be her sister and explain to everyone that, like, this is my sister and this is why she can't speak. The next right. morning, they dressed in their extra clothes and the two set out to test their act on the unsuspecting farmer. 
So they go up to the household and they find that they are all very sympathetic to the two women's plight. And in this way, the women slowly move through the German countryside. So they would stop right. at farms, explain their situation. They would offer to work on the farm for the day so that they could receive uh, like food and room and board. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes them two weeks to reach Reda, which is near the Dutch border. Right. So this is when they start to find like Dutch sympathizers. Mm-hmm. So the women couldn't advance anymore because now they're at the front. If they advance anymore, they're going to be in a war zone. Um, They knew this because first they had encountered Polish infantry, and then they began encountering Canadian artillery as well. So in the town of Reda, they met the Burgermeister of the town, who was like the town's mayor. But I love that that's actually the title. The Burgermeister. Do you remember that that Christmas movie where it's the Burger Burger Meister Burger? No. (laughs) No? Never mind. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the Burgermeister gave the two of them false papers and found them billets to stay with. What a sweet Um, angel. I know. But they didn't find billets for them together. So the women were separated at this point. In the wake of the Allied advance, Mona, like many other of the hundred refugees, um, many of whom were women, began the long walk back to Holland. So Mona manages to cross into Canadian territory and she was treated extremely suspiciously. Canadians were taught to be very wary of women like Mona, who were often recruited by the Nazis to steal rations, weapons, intelligence, or even murder on behalf of the Nazis. So they're letting these refugees into their military camps, but they can't be certain if they're actually who they say they are. So the soldiers didn't believe Mona's incredible story, and she was questioned by a field court where it was looking like they were going to detain her or even imprison her again. Mona was questioned by a succession of skeptical soldiers. Mm -hmm. When she told them she was Canadian, a soldier asked, well, if you're Canadian, where are you from? And she replied, my name is Mona Parsons. I'm from a little tiny village in Nova Scotia called Wolfville. The soldier apparently nearly dropped the box he was holding in shock and said, Dear God, my name is Clarence Leonard. I'm from Halifax, and you've encountered the North Nova Scotia Highlanders. Which, that's the point that I cried. (laughs) My heart! (laughs) It's just like, of course, of all of the people that you'd find, you're going to come across the Nova Scotia Highlanders. (laughs) It makes me so proud for some reason. Yeah, so the North Nova Scotia Highlanders were part of the 1995 Canadian Army pushing through Holland to Germany. The unit surgeon was Kelly McLean, with whom Mona shared the stage at Acadia University. She met Robbins Elliott, whose father had been the Parsons family doctor back in Wolfville. She met her childhood friend, Major General Harry Foster. So she has like acquaintances in and amongst the soldiers as well. This chance meeting with the North Novies meant Mona was able to return to Ingleside. Mona was welcomed by friends and neighbors, uh, including Lee Van Oldenburg, who had hidden some of her possessions for her. So while Mona was imprisoned, the Nazis had used their home as their headquarters. So Mm -hmm. the house was kept in fairly good shape, though it was being used by Nazis for the last four years. 
Her beloved piano had been played by Nazi officers who rested their drinks on it and stained the lovely finish. Her friends were horrified and insisted it could be cleaned and made to be as good as new, but Mona refused. She wanted to keep it as it was and keep it as a reminder of those dark times. Mm-hmm. Mona went about making the house feel like a home again. She entertained some of the North Novies uh, that had rescued her, essentially. Yeah. And she also was reunited with Vendeline, who managed to make her way home back to Holland as oh, well. Oh, that's so nice. I know. Oh. The one issue is that Wilhelm is still nowhere to be found at this point. Yeah. And Mona was growing increasingly worried. But she finally learned that Wilhelm had been liberated from a German concentration camp by American forces. He was extremely weak after three years of harsh prison life, uh, which Mm -hmm. exasperated his kidney condition. Mm -hmm. Um, And Wilhelm needed to remain in hospital for two and a half months before he was strong enough to return to Ingleside. And the couple was finally reunited after four years. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. I know. It's like, it's so happy. I know why you cried now. (laughs) I know. Wilhelm never returned to the family business. Instead, he sold all of his shares to his brother, and he used the money to travel with Mona after the war between bouts of bad health. Mm -hmm. So whenever they're both healthy enough, they just travel. I'm like, of course, that's what you have to do. After you've gone through what you've gone through, you deserve to just, like, enjoy the rest of your life as much as possible. Yeah. They even managed to visit Wolfville, so... They go back to Canada for a brief period of time. That's amazing. Um, Her brothers organized a trout fishing trip for the men, and Mm -hmm. Mona secretly hoped that the trip might convince Wilhelm to move them back to Canada. So at this point, she's like, I want to be with my family. I'd rather return back to Canada. But ultimately, Wilhelm's health was continuing to deteriorate, and so he needed to be back in Europe where the clinics than like the doctors Mm -hmm. were that he knew Mm -hmm. um and Mona's health was also suffering she was so the respiratory issues that she had were continuing to worsen after her time in prison so she constantly has colds and bronchitis in 1954 Mona was staying in a clinic in Switzerland when she received a call that Wilhelm had become seriously ill back home so Mm -hmm. their friend Pam Houtapel so those were the friends I talked about earlier. <laughs> right. Uh, she had stepped in to arrange house care for Willem, and Mona came home as soon as possible. Over the next okay. three years, Wilhelm's health worsened until April of 1956, when his kidneys nearly collapsed and he was in constant pain. He died shortly mm-hmm. after with Mona by his side. So Mona had been prepared so for Wilhelm's death. Yeah, like... Right. It, it is really sad, but... She she kind of knew it was coming, so she had been mm-hmm. preparing herself for his death, but she was entirely unprepared for what she learned following his death, which was that Wilhelm had been carrying out a long-term affair with Pam Houtapel and had <gasps> rewritten his will. <sighs> right? That it's always the woman that's nursing them. <sighs> okay. Mona's our but girl. freaking Pam! Like, I know I we're not know. supposed to be mad at the other woman, but for allowing him to do that? Like, okay, continue, continue. I am. Well, I, I wouldn't be as mad at her if it wasn't for the fact that he rewrote his will yeah. and left her one quarter of everything. 
And additionally, Wilhelm's estranged wait, wait, left son. Wait, one quarter of everything. Pam. So one he quarter of everything Wilhelm. Of, of that everything, uh, yeah, that Wilhelm owns is now Pam's. And additionally, Wilhelm's estranged son reemerges and claims under Dutch law that he is owed one half of the inheritance. So Mona winds up using the remaining what she, what remains of her financial resources to fight these claims in court, and this ultimately forces her to sell Ingleside. Wow. And in December of 1957, Mona gathered what remained of her belongings, including her beloved piano, and said farewell to Holland. She left mm -hmm. for Canada on December 8th, where she arrived in Halifax, and she wound up taking residence at the Lord Nelson Hotel. So, oh, wow. yeah, so over the course of this year, she's just like, finds out that her husband wound up leaving her with almost nothing, mm -hmm. and she has to go back to Canada. So she's no longer rich, but she's not destitute either. And as, as she said, like, this isn't the first time I've had to start all over again. Like, it seems like yeah. mentally she's in a good place. <laughs> um, okay. She winds up renting an apartment at 56 Inglis Street, which is still oh. actually a building in Halifax. We could go visit it yeah. after quarantine. We should. Let's go, on a, let's go on a field trip. Let's go on a field trip, yeah. So Mona stayed connected with her family. Her father, Norval, had passed away some eight years earlier, but she would often visit her stepmother and her brother, Ross, in the Annapolis Valley. She also wrote to her brother, Gwyn, who had settled in Philadelphia. She oh. also became reconnected with her childhood friend, Major General Harry Foster, and the two winded up getting Ooh. married in 1959. Yeah, girl, get it. Yeah, so she remarries. And that he's one of the ones that had been in Holland yeah, that she like. Yeah, he was meets. one of the, yeah. the Novies. Yeah. So the couple lived in various places in Halifax and the Chester Basin, which is like south of Halifax. They owned a property called Lobster Point that was Ooh. quite isolated, but very beautiful. They lived comfortably off of Harry's general pension. However, in... Early spring of 1964, Harry learned that the cold that he wasn't able to shake throughout the winter was actually throat cancer. Oh, Harry. Yeah, and Harry passed away that summer. Sad. So at this point, Mona decided that it was time to move home to Wolfville. Mm -hmm. In Wolfville, she wrote to Vendeline. Uh, in those letters, she explained that she returned to Wolfville because it was a beautiful little community with a theater and a university that she could take some classes from. She also mm -hmm. recognized that it was closer to the family's burial plot. And if she lived in mm -hmm. Wolfville, they, quote, won't have to cart me off. <laughs> oh, <laughs> which I love that she has like kind of a sense of humor about it. But it was also at this point that it's just like it, it's such a classic maritime story. Like, you grow up in a small community, you go away to New York City, you go away to Holland, you live your whole life, and then, it, like, you kind of come to appreciate all the beauty that is your small little town. It's just, like, yeah, it's very, very quintessential. So Mona settled into an apartment on Main Street, where most mm -hmm. people knew her simply as Mona Parsons. So she's never, like, I'm a hero. I was a member of the Dutch Resistance. They're just kind of, like... That's that's actually one of the only things I know about her is that on her gravestone, it doesn't say anything remarkable. Like, yeah. it literally just says, like, Mona Parsons, 
Um, I think it says like wife. And yeah, Edward. she has this yeah. big. She has this big epitaph, but it just says Mona Parsons' date of birth, yeah. date of death, nothing fancy. Yeah. So people just kind of knew her as this kind of like older, entertaining, eccentric woman. What she was, she was known for allowing basically anyone to come into her home to play the piano that she had, um, mm. which she kept, and she would often go to the theater. In her early 70s, her health began to seriously fail, and she required the assistance of a nursing home. So to pay for the extra care, she sold most of her possessions, including her fine wine glasses, her Dutch porcelain, and piano. She also insisted on gifting away many of the things that she owned, which, like... That was the other part that I was cr- I was just crying over the fact that she had to give away the piano, like selling yeah. the piano. And it's it apparently was at I was watching a documentary about her. And at the time of that documentary, which I think was like 15 years ago, it was still in Wolfville. Like that's such an important oh, wow. piece of like f- Canadian history like that. Like, yeah. Anyways, and they show it and it's like you can see like the stains and stuff that they were talking oh, about. Wow. I know. So. Mona Louise Parsons passed away on the 28th of November, 1976. For her bravery, she was recognized internationally, not just by Canada. The British government, in commendation from Air Chief Marshal Tedder and by President Dwight D. Eisenhower, recognized her for her contributions to the Allied war effort during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And that's the story of the badass Mona Parsons. That's amazing. I th- I just think she's so incredible. Like, and I, I don't mean this in like a, like, I don't know. It sounds bad, but like, I feel like a lot of Maritimers could like relate to that story. Just like, mm-hmm. re- not necessarily the story of like fighting in the Dutch resistance, obviously, but like, mm-hmm. I, I think it's a really typical small town feeling that you really have to get away to become anything yeah. or to like yeah. experience you the world have to get away you get stuck in a situation where you need help the nova scotians find you and then you eventually <laughs> come home <laughs> yeah it's just like always this sense that there's something there for you like yeah. it's such a beautiful like wonderful comfort blanket of like i'll always be able to go back there and they'll always like accept me with like open arms and and you know i think it's really disappointing because there's Nothing in particular um, to commemorate her at Acadia University. Yeah, that's a shame. Mm. We should start like a petition. Yeah. She's like one of your that, greatest alumni. I know. I know a, a while ago there was like an art project that was done through the history archives or something, but I, I think it was yeah. the town of Wolfville. I don't think it was affiliated with Acadia. And I yeah. know that they were doing some historical figures, like um, it, it was like different me- mixed media, like there were some sculptures and stuff. And I, I, I think she was recognized in that. Um, yeah. I remember her from the Ghost Walk tour because, like, you see the grave of Mona Parsons. It's just like one of the ones that they like comment on. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that's like I didn't really know her full affiliation with the Kitty. I didn't even know that she went there until. Like, a couple of years ago, it was, like, brought yeah. up by someone, and I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, like, I, I think if, like, Acadia University could produce or sponsor some kind of, like, one-act play or something about Mona Parsons, like, that oh, would that be, be such amazing. a fitting commemoration for her. Yeah, that would be beautiful. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. and I, I think this story is such a brilliant example of like, why heritage minutes are successful like mm-hmm. I, I think any of the heritage minutes that we talk about and we criticize it's usually not like a criticism of the way that they're made it's just a criticism of no, the format no. like when you have a yeah. medium that's only one minute long of course mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to tell everything but I think yeah. they are brilliant at highlighting people that you probably are never going to hear of otherwise right and like as Mona just, Parsons yeah. is, it's such an incredible story, but I really don't think it, it would be something that would get overlooked in, in a more yeah. general format. She's, she's such, she's a person that like, I never saw anything that was like asking to be recognized or, mm. or seeking out some kind of reward for the work that she did. Like, I, I think everything that she did was just from a sense of conviction that she had and you know, I think at a time like the political climate that we live in now to have mm-hmm. people who are really just ordinary people who yeah. just take a stance and say, no, I think this mm-hmm. is wrong. I don't mm-hmm. think that we should be doing this. Like, that's what us, we need to yeah, do every us, single day. Especially before her time. Like, it was so before Definitely. her time to be saying those things and to be, you know, acting in society the way that she acted and carried herself the way that she carried herself. Yeah, and she always act, acted kind of defiantly, like defying the conventional roles of, of a woman or, you know, setting mm-hmm. out to be an independent versus marrying Like and wearing down. pants and not having wearing babies pants. and breaking out of prison, you know? She, Absolutely. She, <laughs> On a spectrum yeah. of things that she did that would list her as like a top rebel, uh, number two would be fighting Nazis and escaping yeah. prison. Number one, pants. Pants. <laughs> Pants for sure. <laughs> I'm a Mona Parsons fangirl. I stand Mona Parsons. She's I stand like, Mona Parsons. She might be my favorite. She might be my favorite. Like, and yeah, I mean, I was crying so much because it's just like, I like, I know so much about the places that she's talking about. Like, it's far more relatable yeah. than I think a lot of some of the other ones that we've done. And, In yeah. female empowerment, it's like Beyonce, Michelle Obama, <laughs> Mona Parsons. Ooh. <laughs> wow. Put her on a put her on money. Let's get her yeah. on a bill. Let's throw Mona Parsons <laughs> on the 50. Let's get rid of that guy. Nobody knows who's on the 50 anyway. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, we're calling out Acadia University. We'd love yeah. to see some kind of commemoration. Acadia, we my my alma mater. Your I would alma love mater. to see I would love to see something to commemorate um, the amazing Mona Parsons and please call me out if I'm wrong and something has been done since I've been at Acadia uh, oh, I yeah. graduated in 2016 it's 2020 now I might be behind the times uh, <laughs> and if that's the case yeah please let me know uh, Grace and I would love to come we'd love check to it check out. it out we'll, we'll yeah. take a little trip. field trip yeah all right uh that was Close an amazing that was an amazing story I loved that Grace thank you so much thanks So thanks for listening to another episode of the Minute Women podcast. If you want to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, that's a huge support to us. So if you could do that on whatever platform you're listening to, that would be awesome. And you can always find all of our social medias and the episodes of the podcast, as well as the sources used in the research at minutewomenpodcast.ca. 
And please check out our Instagram. It's Minute Women Podcast on Instagram. And uh, Facebook is the same handle. Also on Twitter, Grace is our Twitter wizard. We have uh, lots of information and updates coming there. And it's at The Minute Women. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>